How does a man disappear from a group of friends and show up two months later, 15 miles away in a river, with no evidence of having been in the water for more than a few days? If this happens several dozen times, several dozen more men, maybe hundreds in rivers around the country, can we call this just a coincidence? Would police in multiple cities deny and bury autopsy evidence that points to foul play? Could it be a twisted network of killers who stalk, torture, and kill young male victims? Who has that much time on their hands or organizational skills to stalk, capture, and torture multiple victims? And why? My name is Daisy Egan. I'm a Tony Award-winning actor, a published writer, and a true crime obsessive. And this is Strange and Unexplained, a podcast that explores all the oddities that carry on right under our noses. When Patrick Hines came to me about doing a podcast about weird phenomena, UFOs, ghost sightings, hidden identities, where is Shelley Miskovich? But seriously, guys, where the hell is Shelley Miskovich? He suggested we start with a handful of young men who disappeared and were found in the Charles River in Boston, as chronicled by the blogger Cryptid Antiquarian. I said, I see your Boston guys disappearing slash drowning, and I raise you dozens more young men disappearing slash drowning all over the eastern seaboard and parts of the Midwest. And I'll throw in a conspiracy and my own unfounded libelous theory. And he was like, what have I gotten myself into? And then he put an attorney on retainer and let me have my way. He's a smart man. So, the vanishing drowning men. As early as 1997, college-aged, mostly white men started showing up dead in bodies of water weeks or months after going missing, usually after a night out with friends. Now, plenty of people will argue that college kids partying and accidental drownings go hand in hand. But a team of three retired NYPD detectives and a forensics professor believe that this amounts to much more than a series of unfortunate events. By their count, between 100 and 250 of these cases exist. And they're connected by a serial killer or network of killers. They've named this hidden network the Smiley Face Killers because sometimes Smiley Face graffiti has been found within 10 miles of where the victims are discovered. They also claim, after independent review by their own forensic experts, that many of the victims' autopsy reports have been falsified, leaving out critical and damning signs of foul play. Indications that these men suffered beatings or other forms of physical injury not normally caused by just falling in the water. They've devoted their lives and lots of money to this theory. To me, the smiley face theory is flimsy, but I don't think they were all accidental either. There are too many weird coincidences. The biggest coincidences that make up the smiley face theory are, one, the victims are almost all college-age white men. Two, the victims are separated from friends. And three, the victims go missing anywhere from days to months before showing up dead in a body of water. How do these killers separate the victims from the groups they're with? 
Are they drugging them? If so, how do they know their victim will go off alone? Are they drugging them and then sort of crossing their fingers? If so, how much time are they devoting to stalking young men? Like, you need to be pretty devoted to that if that's your M.O. Also, what's the point? If it's infamy they're after, this roving group of sociopaths needs a much better brand manager. Leaving graffiti of a generic smiley face somewhere within city limits of where you've committed a crime is not exactly a calling card. So, the first case tied to this theory. On February 16, 1997, Patrick McNeil, a 21-year-old Fordham University student, stumbled out of the Dapper Dog Bar on Manhattan's Upper East Side, turned the corner, and wasn't seen again until two months later where he was found dead, floating in the water in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Patrick was out with some friends the night he disappeared. Some of those friends said he had a couple of drinks. Others said he had five or six. Now, lots of 21-year-olds think five or six drinks is a couple of drinks. It's not bad math. It's just like, yeah, I had a couple drinks usually means I had six shots of Jaeger and four pints of Sam Adams Wicked Lager. Calculations and libations aren't exactly a great pair, but everyone seems to agree he was drunk. He puked in the bathroom and then decided to call it a night and take the subway back up to the Bronx. Witnesses say he then stumbled down 2nd Avenue, falling once or twice, followed by a van that had been double parked outside the bar. The van seemed to stop when he stopped and crawled along behind him, according to witnesses. He turned east on 90th Street, and that was the last time anyone saw him alive. A lot of the sources I read like to point out how many violations the Dapper Dog Bar had received for serving alcohol to underage drinkers. Let me tell you something. I grew up in New York City in the 80s and 90s. You could not find a bar on the island of Manhattan or in any of the five boroughs that didn't willingly serve alcohol to minors. At 16, I was often found drinking Long Island iced teas at any number of establishments, so who cares? Hell, I could have been at the Dapper Dog that night in 1997. Before we get into the dozens and dozens of other drowning deaths of young, fit men and the pieces of their stories that seem to match, I want to point out a couple of oddities about Patrick's death in particular. The East River, the body of water that police say Patrick fell into, is only a two-block walk from the site of the Dapper Dog, specifically two blocks east. The subway to the Bronx, where Patrick was headed, was to the west, not east of the bar. All subways to anywhere were to the west of the bar. So if he turned left onto 90th, he went the wrong way. Police said he went to the river to pee. Okay. So maybe he was intentionally headed to the river, but you can't just, like, walk into the East River. There's a stretch of four-lane highway, the FDR Drive, before you can get to the water. During the day, the FDR is a heavily used road, taking people to points along Manhattan's east side and to and from the island. There's Brooklyn to the south, Queens to the east, and the Bronx, Westchester, and Connecticut to the north. 
It's possible that at that time, late at night slash early in the morning, the traffic wasn't so bad as to make it impossible to cross, but the FDR is never empty. And especially when traffic is light, people tend to use the thing like their own Audubon. If Patrick decided it was appropriate to cross a highway to reach the water, one would think that after hearing reports of a person gone missing in the area, one motorist might come forward and be like, oh yeah, I saw a guy stumbling across the FDR drive that night. Regardless, after froggering his way across the highway, he then would have had to climb a small barrier fence. Not impossible, but again, like, why? The point is, you couldn't just stroll into the river. And even if you could, who walks into a river? Unless you're Virginia Woolf. It was 23 degrees out. Also, I don't know if you've ever met a drunk white man in his early 20s, but I have, and I can confidently say that the world is their bathroom. They're not about to walk two blocks out of their way, dodge traffic, and climb a barrier fence to pee in a river. As a Daily Beast reporter put it, why would he do that when he could pee anywhere? The NYPD responded to Patrick's disappearance by attacking his character and saying he was just hiding out in Queens, a place I would venture to say falls under NYPD jurisdiction, but whatever. After Patrick turned up dead in Brooklyn, the NYPD changed their theory to the drunken bathroom break slash hurtling himself accidentally into the East River. Patrick's body was found about two months later in the water off Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. For anyone who's not familiar with the layout of the five boroughs, Bay Ridge is nowhere near the Upper East Side. If Patrick had fallen into the water on 90th Street on the east side, he would have had to travel over 13 miles in a river that changes current depending on time of day, and he would have had to travel through some pretty rough water. That doesn't seem possible to me. And these are just the first clues that Patrick's death wasn't an accident. Okay, so when they found Patrick's body two months later in Brooklyn, the official autopsy ruled the manner of death inconclusive, claiming no signs of foul play as well as no advanced decomposition. Patrick was found on his back, which is not normal in a drowning, and there wasn't nearly as much decomposition as there should have been if he had been in the water for two months. If his body had really traveled all those miles through all those conditions, it seems to me there almost definitely would have been more damage to his body than what was found at his autopsy. Human corpses do a number of different but fairly predictable things when submerged in water. The body first floats, then sinks, and then can rise up again with parts of the body submerged and parts not. Finding a body that was in the water as long as police claim in the position and condition that Patrick would found is fishy, to say the least, and no pun intended. Not to mention the lack of skin slippage. Skin slippage is exactly what it sounds like. Let's not dwell. What's important is that skin slippage begins between two and seven days of submersion. His autopsy mentions none. The state of decomposition on his body makes it impossible that he was in the water since the night of his disappearance, in my completely unscientific, but I know how to read opinion. 
Look, maybe I'm missing something. If you can explain how a body can remain in the water for two months with barely any damage, please feel free to tweet at me and then maybe package whatever it is as a skincare line. Other reports said that Patrick's body had been partially burned and that there were ligature marks on his neck. But these indicators of torture weren't on the official autopsy, and the NYPD was reluctant to classify Patrick's death as anything other than an accidental drowning. At this point, I think it's safe to say that the police are not always working on the side of the citizens they're sworn to protect and serve. Sometimes it's in the cops' best interest to sweep crimes under the rug for one reason or another. It's not a new concept that law enforcement has been known to falsify or hide information for whatever reason. Maybe they want to keep crime statistics low in their area. Maybe they're trying to fill a quota. Maybe they have a suspect or theory in mind and it's making their investigation biased. Maybe investigating a drowning death is anything other than what it appears to be is a drain on resources. That area of the Upper East Side of New York in 97 was gentrifying. Younger white people were moving in, driving rents up. It wouldn't be a stretch to guess that a drowning homicide in their zip code would make it harder to convince people that the neighborhood was safe. According to the Daily Beast, two more men around the same age vanished in New York City over the next 15 months. The body of one of them was found near where Patrick McNeil's body was found. The third one was found in the Hudson River around 138th Street across the city. One of those men, 22-year-old Lawrence Larry Robert Andrews Jr., disappeared just after celebrating New Year's Eve in Times Square. In the early morning hours of January 1st, 1998, he was seen either walking or running up 42nd Street near Grand Central Station, depending on who you ask. Then, on February 12th, nearly a month and a half later, he was found very near where Patrick's body had been found months earlier. Once again, police claimed Larry probably accidentally fell into the river and that he had been in the water the whole time. They chalked the similarities between Larry and Patrick's circumstances up to coincidence. The other thing is, the river's even farther away from Grand Central Station than it would have been from the Dapper Dog, so how he managed to get over to the river and then accidentally fall into it is beyond me. Once again, an independent review found inconsistencies with the official medical examiner's report of the autopsy. Evidence of damage to Larry's body that wouldn't have happened just from being in the water, lack of skin slippage, the level of decomposition was just not consistent with Larry's body having been in the water for a month and a half. But let's not just stop in New York. In December 2015, on Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania's north side, 23-year-old Dakota James called his friend Shelly hours after leaving a work Christmas party. Desperate, he told her, quote, I don't know where I am. I'm so cold. Please help me. I'm lost. Shelly had Dakota's location in her phone because, honestly, the world is a hellfire and she's a smart young woman who wants to be able to track her friends in situations just like this. My sister sends me pictures of men's ID if she has to be alone with them for any length of time in case she gets datelined. 
Shelly hopped in her car to find him, and as she drove, Dakota kept texting her, trying to help her find him. At one point, he sent a picture of his leg, which is just, what? Shelly showed up about 10 minutes after Dakota's first text. She saw him come out of a Spring Hill Suites hotel and head straight for a black SUV parked out front. Shelly called out his name, and he just sort of looked over at her and then walked to her, getting into her car. You might remember that witnesses saw Patrick McNeil stumbling down the street after he left the bar with a van following close behind. Dakota claimed he asked the police for help and they brushed him off as just another drunk kid. I don't know why someone being drunk precludes them from getting help from the police. Shelley said Dakota didn't seem drunk. He was crying, and he said he'd lost about four hours and had no idea how he ended up where he did. Suspecting he might have been drugged, she recommended taking him to the hospital, but he refused. The next day, he kind of laughed it off, called it a bad hangover, and didn't want to talk about it. But then, a few weeks later, on January 25th, Dakota went missing after another night out with friends. His mother filed a missing person report as soon as she found out he hadn't made it home. The police didn't accept the report until five days later. Dakota was found 40 days after he went missing, 10 miles downriver. Once again, law enforcement theorized that Dakota went to the river to pee, fell in, and drowned. It's a wonder most men survived the urinal. I'm just going to go ahead and drive this point in, in case it hasn't sunk. Just like with Patrick McNeil, independent autopsy reviews done by the team of retired detectives showed there were ligature marks found on Dakota's neck. Also, where he was found, Dakota's body would have had to have passed through a dam, which almost certainly would have caused damage to his body, which was not outlined in the official autopsy. Also, not for nothing, but Dakota was the captain of the swim team. It's fair to say what happened to Patrick and what happened to Dakota is suspicious, and that there are suspicious similarities between their untimely deaths. And they're not the only ones. After I did all this research, I remembered that my producer, Patrick, had originally been interested in the 10 or so men who'd gone missing and wound up dead in the Charles River since 2003. So let's indulge him. One of the Boston cases, as profiled in the Cryptid Antiquarian's blog, is 24-year-old William Hurley, who left a hockey game at halftime. At one point, my producer, Patrick, mentioned that Hurley left the hockey game during intermission. Clearly, those of us at the Obsessed Network understand sports. So, William called a friend to pick him up and then vanished. He was found six days later upstream of where he disappeared. It looked like someone had intentionally destroyed his cell phone and he had blunt force trauma to his head. Now his autopsy showed 18 micrograms of GHB in his body. For those of you lucky enough to not know what that is, it's informally called the date rape drug. Don't get me started on the term date rape. Post 
Post-mortem drug and alcohol levels are unreliable, especially the longer the person has been dead. GHB is one of the chemicals the body naturally produces. The normal levels of GHB in a dead body is about 10 micrograms. Considering William was only missing for six days, it's not inconceivable that he was drugged. Also, he was a sailor in the Navy. Then there's 26-year-old Dustin Willis, who went missing after a night out with friends in March 2007. His body was found five days later in the Charles River. He was also, ready, a sailor in the Navy. Is it just me, or are sailors supposed to be, like, pretty good in and around water? Jean Losick, a 25-year-old engineering student at Amherst with a black belt in karate, was partying with friends at a hotel in Boston. He went out for a cigarette and, like a deadbeat dad, never came back. His body was found nine months later in the river. There are strings of other mysterious disappearances slash drownings that some believe are connected to this in Iowa, Illinois, Minnesota, and Michigan. And there are dozens more of these cases. So what is going on here? Some people think this is the work of a serial killer, but I'm not so sure. Okay, so now that we've established that shit is weird and recurring, let's talk about what some, not the police in charge of these cases, some people think is happening. As I mentioned in the introduction, there is a team of guys made up of three retired NYPD detectives and one professor of forensics who have now dedicated years and many, many dollars to investigating these murders. According to the Daily Beast article, they have connected up to possibly 250 cases, about 100 of which they feel they can prove. They believe that these murders have all been perpetrated by a gang of serial killers that use the dark web to communicate. They have dubbed them the Smiley Face Killers in reference to Smiley Face graffiti that has been found near some of the bodies. By near, they mean anywhere from a few feet to 10 miles away. In fact, the graffiti has only been found near some of the victims' bodies, not all. And the style of graffiti varies wildly. Also, it's just a smiley face. Like, if I were gonna start graffitiing the city, a smiley face is a pretty easy way to start. I have zero artistic ability, but I can draw a smiley face. And why would there only be the marking in some of the deaths, but not all? And why wouldn't they be uniform? This connection seems flimsy at best. According to one of the retired NYPD detectives on this independent team, Kevin Gannon, the motives for the murders range from gang initiation to hate crimes. But which is it? And if these murders happen at the hand of different people in different parts of the country for different reasons, and what unifies them is a generic spray-painted image that may or may not be at all of the sites, aren't we stretching the limits of the term gang of serial killers here? Of course, there is one other connection, demographics. These guys are all around the same age, physically fit, and almost all of them are white. In an interview for the Daily Beast, former Detective Gannon says, they're targeting the best of the best. These kids are the best students. They're the best athletes, and they come from the best families. These are upstanding young men. So why precisely do they hate them? Because maybe they're succeeding. Maybe it's the haves and the have-nots. Guys, if that quote doesn't make you want to commit Harry Carey, then stop whatever you're doing and go back and listen to it again. 
Let me translate Gannon's quote for you. These kids are middle and upper class white college men. Who in the world doesn't love that group? What have they ever done wrong? They are the best of the best, you guys. They get good grades, they do good at sports, and they have the best families. Maybe the killer or killers are just resentful that they're succeeding. I don't know. Killed for their white male privilege is a step too far into the world of Jordan Peterson for my stomach to handle. And if you don't know who that is, Google him and then go wash your brain out with lie. But Gannon has mortgaged his house and maxed out his credit cards investigating these murders. He passionately believes these men were targeted because of who they were, and he wants to get to the bottom of it. But what would be the point of trying to send a message if you're not, like, sending a message? If these are vigilante killers who have a bone to pick with young white guys, why not let the world know that? Why not send anonymous letters to newspapers stating your motive? And why pick a smiley face as your symbol? Why not, I don't know, the symbol for male crossed out or a penis with a knife in it? I'm just spitballing here. It is possible if someone was profiling these guys, maybe it was because they associated them with toxic masculinity and violence rather than as pillars of society. But it does seem like these attacks weren't random. These men were stalked and killed after somehow being separated from their friends. I do believe these men were victims of profiling and murder, and that there may be some loose affiliation between killers via the dark web. Kind of like a Facebook group of hunters, but instead of hunting deer, they hunt people. The same way many serial killers profiled young, vulnerable women, Maybe this killer or these killers were profiling young, able-bodied, college-age white guys. Again, there is no evidence that the victims of these weird cases are sex offenders. That's just where my mind went when I learned about them. But if that really was the motivation behind these killings, why haven't Brock Turner or any of the other famous rapists we know shown up dead in a body of water? If anyone fits the profile, college age, white, athletic, swimmer, come on. Patrick wants me to state here that I, or at least the Obsessed Network, are in no way suggesting someone should kill Brock Turner or condoning that idea. The most entertaining theory I found when researching this case comes from some rando on websleuths.com, so you know this is reliable. This person suggests that it's a sect of killer monks at the Abbey at St. John's University. Killer monks, you guys. Seems like someone's watching way too many late-night kung fu movies. Anyway, the internet is a great place. Here's what I keep coming back to. How in the world are they getting these men away from their friends? Most victims of serial killers were either charmed into a sense of false security or worked in the sex industry or surprised and overpowered. Serial killers are opportunistic. If stalking happens, it happens at a victim's work, school, or home. Do these people really have so much time that they can scope out a social situation, find a mark, learn his behaviors and that of his friends, find a good moment to abduct him, drug his drink, Hope he walks out alone, follow him, snatch him, torture him for some length of time, and then dump his body in a nearby river? I mean, are these people just, like, independently wealthy? I don't get it. And how is there no evidence? It's 
sort of hard to be a serial killer these days, given how many cameras are around and how we just leave a digital footprint every time we sneeze. So what have we learned? Many young white men have been found in bodies of water after disappearing suspiciously since 1997. Many, many law enforcement officials and medical examiners fail to see foul play in these situations and definitely do not see a conspiracy. But there are some weird similarities and beyond confused and grieving parents. At least four people, law enforcement and forensic people, see a pattern. They've dedicated a ton of time and resources to investigating these cases. They've even founded a business to formalize their services. Does this make me more or less suspicious of them? It's hard to say. What do I think? I have a lack of knowledge and expertise, but like many Americans before me, I'm not going to let that stop me. I am intrigued by this serial killer network. It seems odd that so many healthy, mentally sound, and undistressed young men would end up dead. Of course, so many people end up dead every day in this country, and so many of them are not investigated formally or informally. But look, the real focus of today, of this podcast, is the strange and unexplained, and this qualifies. I find myself wondering about the sheer number of these instances and about how these guys were each time separated from a group of friends, about the weeks and months that passed between disappearance and discovery without the corresponding body decomposition. There's something not adding up here. So that's it. We may never know. This show is about the unknown, the things that keep us wondering, that raise the hair at the back of our necks, that keep us awake at night, or at least keep people roving around Scotland shouting, Nessie! Until next time, guys, don't go pee in a river. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan, Bigfoot. Three men go into the woods, decades apart, and encounter the same terrifying creature. Is it possible that Bigfoot is real? Turns out, yes, it is. And just maybe, the proof has been right in front of us for years. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me, edited by Claire Smith-Marish, and researched by Hallie Gray. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. Also, if you're enjoying our show, check out all of the Obsessed Network shows, including Crimes of the Century, a deep dive into historical crimes hosted by award-winning journalist Amber Hunt. Find Crimes of the Century wherever you get your podcasts. 